Hello everyone and thank you for joining me for this podcast as we take a look at the blood clotting cascade. Now the maintenance of a constant blood volume is essential. The blood is the body's main transport system for a range of vital chemicals so things like glucose, oxygen, carbon dioxide and urea. It's a heat distribution system and it's also a delivery mechanism for cells of the immune system. It's crucial that animals with a cardiovascular system can slow and ultimately prevent blood loss from injury or damage to body tissues. In addition, the skin and accompanying secretions from the sebaceous glands is a highly effective barrier to pathogens, so things like bacteria, viruses, fungi, things that cause disease. The repair of skin is vital to the prevention of contraction of infectious diseases. The faster an organism can plug the leak as such, the less blood loss will occur and the chance of infection is hugely reduced. So let's talk about the blood clotting mechanism. When blood vessels are broken by a scrape or a cut, a sequence of events take place to quickly seal that wound. The main mechanical event which occurs is called coagulation. Coagulation or clotting is the conversion of the liquid components of blood to solid ones. Now the sealant in a blood clot is a molecule known as fibrinogen. In the absence of injury, fibrinogen just circulates in an inactive form. When injury occurs, the proteins in the blood vessel wall are exposed to blood constituents. Platelets are attracted to these exposed proteins and they gather at the site of injury, releasing what are called clotting factors as they do. Now, these clotting factors can then trigger a cascade of reactions, which leads to the formation of an active enzyme called thrombin from the inactive form called prothrombin. That activated enzyme or thrombin converts fibrinogen to fibrin which will then aggregate into threads and these threads form that skeletal framework of the clot. So let's talk a bit more in detail about this blood clotting and feedback loop idea. Well clotting involves a positive feedback loop so to start with only some of the prothrombin at the clot site is actually converted to thrombin. However, thrombin itself stimulates the enzymatic cascade. That ultimately leads to more conversion of prothrombin to thrombin, and it ensures the clotting process is driven to completion, ultimately. If this positive feedback loop were to continually, or continue indefinitely rather, our body would potentially become just one large walking clot, that would lead to major issues within our circulatory system. In order to prevent that from happening, there are negative feedback loops. In addition to helping create fibrin from fibrinogen, thrombin also stimulates the production of something called antithrombin. Now, antithrombin decreases the amount of thrombin being generated from prothrombin. So in that way, it's, I guess you could say, self-limiting and it prevents a sort of runaway effect which would otherwise be seen every time there was any damage to a blood vessel lining. Now, there are two processes that can initiate clotting. 
the extrinsic and the intrinsic pathways. In the in, eh, let's talk about the extrinsic first. In the extrinsic pathway, damaged cells display surface proteins called tissue factor or TF as it's known. These bind to activated factor 7 to initiate clotting. In the an intrinsic pathway, apologies, a molecule called factor 12 circulates in the blood. Now, this is activated if blood comes into contact with collagen molecules in tissue spaces. So, for example, if blood leaks out of vessels. Both pathways can initiate blood clotting. However, it's likely that both pathways act together at the site of a wound. A number of different clotting factors or proteins are involved in both pathways. The two pathways can actually converge. Factor 10 when activated by either pathway, binds and activates factor 5. The resulting molecule is known as a heterodimer, and it's a protease, which converts prothrombin into thrombin. Thrombin, in addition to its role of converting fibrinogen into fibrin, also activates factor 13. Now, factor 13 forms covalent bonds between the fibrin molecules, converting them into what we know as the characteristic mesh network. Now, there are ways to amplify this whole clotting process. As I've already kind of alluded to, positive feedback loops are essential in the formation of a successful clot. Uh, just a few examples. The TF7 complex activates factor 9, which binds to factor 8, a protein in the blood stabilizing another protein, uh, von Willebrand factor or VWF. Now that complex then activates more factor 10. You've also got thrombin uh, which activates more factor 5, factor 8 and factor 11. Factor 11 amplifies the production of acti activated factor 9. I think people, yeah, those listening can see where I'm going with this. The combination of all of these different feedback loops and other pathways is why this whole process and why the podcast is called the enzyme cascade. There are a number of bleeding disorders, however, and that's where I'd like to kind of take this podcast. That's what I'd like to discuss at uh, this point. Any genetic mutation which disrupts a step in this massive clotting cascade may cause haemophilia. Now, this disease is characterized by bruising and excessive bleeding from even just a minor cut. There are two possible causes of deficiencies in the clotting factors. Either not enough of one factor is produced or a factor fails to perform properly due to a mutant version. Now, there are a number of uh, different types of haemophilia that you can get and different clotting factors are affected. So, for example, haemophilia type A uh, involves clotting factor 8. Type B involves clotting factor 9, haemophilia type C involves clotting factor 11, and with the case of von Willebrand disease, then we're talking about von Willebrand factor. Now, there are many types of bleeding disorder, and a full list can actually be found at um, the website www.haemophilia.org uh, slash bleeding disorders. Now, factors 8 and 9 are coded for by genes on the X chromosome. The inheritance of these conditions can therefore be said uh, to be X-linked, is the proper terminology. Now, as with other 
among many other, in fact, X-linked disorders, haemophilia A and haemophilia B are almost exclusively found in males. Males inherit just one X chromosome and, if it carries a defective gene for factor 8 or, or 9, they will suffer from the disease. There are many mutant versions of the factor 8 and 9 genes, de- well, and depending on the effect on protein structure, you can get actually a range of clotting function disorders. So how would you go about treating haemophilia type A, let's say? Well, this is where we can talk about recombinant clotting factor. So the main treatment for haemophilia A is medication containing concentrated factor 8. This product is developed using DNA technology, so it reduces the need for human-derived donor plasma. It's thought that around, I think around 75% of haemophilia sufferers take a recombinant factor 8 product. That treatment is given through a vein in the arm. The regularity of treatment will be determined by the severity of that individual's condition. If the severity of haemophilia is quite mild, then in terms of plasma levels of factor 8, as a sort of value, if we take it as a percentage of normal levels, for mild we're talking anywhere between 6 to 49%. For moderate haemophilia, that could be anything between 1 and 5%. And for severe haemophilia, we're talking about less than 1%. There's something called desmopressin acetate, or DDAVP for short. This is a synthetic version of vasopressin, a natural hormone that helps stop bleeding. It is suitable for sufferers of mild haemophilia, and it's actually available in an injectable form and a nasal spray. Aminocaproic acid is another one. Um, This is an anti-fibrinolytic agent. So basically what I mean by that is it prevents the breakdown of blood clots. Aminocaproic acid, uh, it acts by inhibiting something called plasminogen activators, which have fibrinolytic properties. It's actually a derivative of the amino acid lysine. It can be taken orally as a tablet or a liquid. And the one that I think most people would have heard of uh, monoclonal antibody therapy. It's certainly something that I I teach about or mention in my own A-level studies. Halimbra, to use its brand name, is a monoclonal antibody. Just to give a definition of monoclonal antibody, there we're talking about antibodies that have derived from a clone of plasma B cells that originated from one individual, almost like parent cell. Now, most antibodies have two identical binding sites. However, Halimbra is what we call bispecific, which means that one of its arms binds to activated factor 9 and the other to factor 10. That brings the two together so that the clotting cascade can proceed. Laboratory studies have shown that when both factor 13 and Halimbra are present, factor 8 binds more readily and tightly than halimbra. Now what that means uh, is that overcoagulation is very unlikely and the drug is safe to take by individuals with a range of factor 8 levels in their plasma. Let's for a moment talk about how we can reduce blood clotting. 
there are some situations where it is important to actually reduce the level of clotting that is required or is likely to happen so potentially that can be essential to survival so i'm thinking here for example uh, reducing a clot formation in the brain or a clot in the lungs a naturally circulating molecule known as antithrombin 3 binds to and therefore inhibits three components of the clotting pathway prothrombin factor 9 and factor 10 the medication heparin is a polysaccharide mixture. Heparin binds to the enzyme antithrombin 3 and it induces an allosteric change. Now that's a change in the shape of the molecule. That change in shape inhibits thrombin synthesis. Patients receiving hip or heart valve replacements are given heparin as a prophylactic measure, i.e. as a precaution before their operation to reduce the chances of unwanted blood clotting in major organs. Vitamin K is needed for the synthesis of factor 2, factor 7, 9 and 10. And so, as you can imagine, a deficiency of vitamin K can increase the likelihood of bleeding in the individual. Alternatively, interfering with the action of vitamin K may prevent unwanted or inappropriate clotting. Warfarin is a vitamin K antagonist. Now, this means that it interferes with the action of the vitamin K molecules. Warfarin is prescribed to individuals who have had a previous blood clot or who are at a high risk of having clots in the future. And that may be due to abnormal heartbeats, um, maybe a replacement or mechanical heart valve, a blood clotting disorder like thrombophilia, or a chance of having a blood clot after an operation. One thing that I th think is absolutely fascinating when you look at the um, clotting cascade is blood clotting in relation to venom. Now it's estimated that one in every 8,000 species of animal is actually venomous. That's approximately 200,000 species. Now many of the venoms include some sort of blood clotting interference chemicals. So for example, the western diamondback rattlesnake, uh, Crotalus atrox, is a, it's what we call a strike and release predator. So that means that the snake has to track its prey for some distance after injecting its venom. It's a, a phenomenon known as envenomation, until the organism is finally immobilized. Two toxins are present in that rattlesnake's venom. Crototoxin 1 and 2. Now these are disintegrin type toxins which disrupt blood clotting by inhibiting platelet aggregation. However, in C. atrox, the toxins also bind to receptors in the prey and they stimulate the release of volatile compounds which produces a scent that the rattlesnake can actually follow. When injected into humans, venom from a Stevens banded snake causes a severe headache, a crushing feeling as we describe it, on the chest, and shortly after, a loss of consciousness. The venom induces a condition known as venom-induced consumption coagulopathy. The venom destroys the blood clotting ability of an organism by activating, and thereby depleting, all of the clotting factors it comes into contact with. Now in smaller animals, so the snake's normal prey I guess, these clots quickly lead to stroke injury and death.
In humans, the larger blood volume dilutes the clot sufficiently to prevent immediate damage. However, the clots circulate around the body for hours and can cause embolism, a stroke or cardiac arrest. And I'll just finish by mentioning the um, venom of the blood-sucking kissing bug. That contains a protein called rodnine. Now, now rodnine is really interesting. The bonds in that protein actually give it great stability. And rodnine actually prevents the action of the enzyme thrombin. Now, thrombin, as I've said, is essential for blood clotting. So inhibition of thrombin enables that insect to just continuously feed on the liquid blood of its prey. So then we have just a snapshot of the blood clotting cascade. Often most people are aware about the idea of platelets being involved and this kind of mesh forming, this kind of scab if you like. But what I wanted to do in this podcast is really just explain the connection between fibrin, fibrinogen, thrombin, prothrombin, and just really give a bigger overview of how complex this cascade really is and just how diverse the role of all these clotting factors is. Now, if anyone has any questions, as always, do let me know at kytospology at gmail.com. I'd like to take this opportunity as well to thank all obviously everybody for listening but also our sponsors curriculum press for providing content for me to use for this particular podcast so until next time